Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Yuri Brito, entitled The Death of Sex, Alfred Kinsey's Sexual Revolution. Be sure to check out more from Pastor Brito now on Canon Plus. This conference was supposed to be different. It was going to be all death and no sex. But Yuri decided not to go with the program. I just wanted to say it. You know, the title of my talk is The Death of Sex. But let's pray together. Our God and our Father, you are good to us, your people. You have granted us the joys of this life. You have established your truth, your way, your life. And yet, our Father has perverted the way, the truth, and the life. And so cause us to see the world anew, the world through the eyes of faith, that we might understand how this world functions by applying the truth of your word. Give us now your deepest blessings at this time, for Christ's sake. Amen. So just as a, as a brief context here, uh, this is in one way a continuation of last year's lecture. My interest in the topic of sexual abuse and domestic abuse has sort of intensified this past year. I am the, the chair of the Committee on Child Protection of the CREC, and so I've been doing a lot of research these past 12 months on the topic. And as I read more and more works by Diane Langberg and some just a renowned scholars on these issues that I saw this interesting name, Alfred Kinsey. And the footnote said Alfred Kinsey was the high priest of sexual liberation. Now, of course, I had heard of Alfred Kinsey, but I was not aware of the level of influence he had on the sexual liberation movement, really on the sexual ethics of our present culture. So that is what began my research into Alfred Kinsey in these last uh, 90 days. I confess it's probably been the most perturbing period of research I think I've done in my entire life. Uh, for reasons I won't be able to mention them all, but you'll get a, a little bit glimpse of the life of Kinsey this morning. I've read his three main biographies. The, the James Jones biography is about a thousand pages, mighty long, but very helpful to get a picture of where some of the influence and some of the, the proponents of sexual liberation move, not only the 1950s and 60s, but even today, where they find their genesis. We live in an overly sexualized age. That is just the, the reality of where we are today. Uh, young children are being introduced to nudity and sexuality at an earlier and earlier stages of life, whether it be through sex um, education in public schools, sexualized video games, which is their whole a new a plethora and genre of them, and a myriad of other sources. Parents are no longer the first to instruct their children in the issues of sexuality. We have movies, sitcoms. YouTube videos, entirely new genre sexualized novels, which are quite popular, as you know well. Not to mention the billions of dollars invested in the porn industry in this country have provided a culture that's not only overly sexualized, but overly desensitized to nudity and sex. And pastors today who manage to speak about sexual purity in our day are sort of viewed as you know, ancient creatures of a Victorian era. Preaching against premarital sex, for example, just a very simple, uh, straightforward uh, message, is virtually unheard of in our day, according to Christianity Today. The evangelical church will give a pass to the sexually active teen on Sunday, while Monday morning protesting at the abortion mill, which can only be really considered a fantastic display of inconsistency in the evangelical church. So the sexualized culture, what it has done is it has made our job as pastors a lot more difficult because most of the sins that we deal with as pastors has to do with sex. Isn't that truth? It has to do with sex one way or another. So we're here attempting to create a culture where sex is discussed without fear and at the same time proclaiming a view of sex that is both biblical and joyful in the way God intended, but at the same time, the church is fighting the sexual ethics war and losing by failing to proclaim how the scriptures intend and speak of human sexuality. Now, 
assuming that we live in an overly sexualized age, which nobody will dispute that proposition, one of the questions we need to ask is, how did we get to this place? How did we get to this place of an overly sexualized culture? How did we get to that point? See, the reality is we never enter an age without having first dug up the cultural fossils of a previous one. We have a pattern in our culture which is very much like a Jurassic Park experiment. We take the DNA of a previous era and then we create a brand new monster in the new one. And one such monster is the sexual liberation movement. Certainly it's not a new item on the secularist agenda. Nobody would say it is a new item. I think we've all understood that quite well. But the genesis of sexual liberation movement, like the genesis of new philosophies in our day, doesn't begin in some secret underground laboratory. No, not at all. In fact, it begins in the classroom. That's right, in the classroom. It was academia that gave us this revolution that built this gravitas to move this perverted sexuality from the classroom to the living room. Now, we all know that forms of sexual perversion, sexual deviancy have always existed. Uh, they existed in the days of the Apostle Paul. They existed before that and before that. In fact, to be even more precise, in the beginning, God gave us sex. Genesis portrays sex as it was intended, right? Be fruitful and multiply, God commanded. And Genesis 3 offers us the antithesis of that. She took its fruit and she ate it. In other words, as we've learned here at BH for many, many years, she partook of the gift of God before it was the time, the right time. Adam perverted sex by allowing his wife to be seduced by the world's first pimp, the devil. The devil sought to prostitute Eve's innocence. And what he did was that he wished to use her ability to produce God-honoring offspring, and instead he wished that she would produce a line of perverse offspring. In Genesis 3, we lost the gift of sex in its sinless design. So the devil has had many centuries, thousands of years to manufacture a version of sex that is as desirable as it is destructive. You know, screw tape unravels his plan one ad at a time. But not only was our sexual purity lost in the Garden of Eden, but what we lost also was our ability to think properly about sex. And I'm thinking specifically of the evangelical culture. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We heard that many times. But we also, in the process, we lost our God-given minds. And the noetic effects are very visible in everything we see on television, in ads, and around us. Salvation and deliverance from this manifestation, this sexual liberation, this revolution of sexual perversion, is really something that necessitates a divine brain surgery. I like the way Van Til puts it in Christian apologetics when he says that if an operation is to be performed, it can only be performed by the divine surgeon, Jesus Christ. But the reality is that though we claim to be in Christ, indeed we are through our baptisms, though we have the mind of Christ, we all this morning bear the imperfections of Adam. Our brains don't think properly about everything. Which is why we need words, sacraments, prayer, wisdom. We need all these things. We need our minds oriented towards truth each Lord's Day, consistently, frequently, and repeatedly. The ecclesiastical scene, which is one of my topics last year, is damaged. The ecclesiastical world is damaged when it comes to the issue of sexuality. You know, uh, many years ago we, we were exposed to the abuse of Roman Catholic priests that had been going on for decades. But then we tend to hide the reality that sexual abuse happens at the same level of frequency, if not more so, in the Protestant church. But not only do we fail to deal with these issues, but the other reality is that the place that ought to be a, a haven of rest and refuge for sexually abused victims become a place where pastors are no longer protecting the victims, but protecting the perpetrators. Pastors do not provide the kind of shelter that these victims need. And so even the churches, we could say, has been in, have been invaded by the devilish lie of Genesis chapter 3. So we need, really, a revolution of thinking, a revolution of our minds to think properly about sex, which we have failed to do so for so long. We need biblical sex education. If the world had a, has a couple of decades of head start on this issue here, the church needs, really, through her families, 
uh, through her practices, through her liturgy, to offer an alternative vision. The church's role is to provide the world an alternative use of the mind, a renewed mind, that will give us the wisdom to deal with sexuality in the way that it was intended, its proper role in our society. So I believe if we are to view sex properly, one of the things we need to be very uh, strategic about is being strategic about understanding the enemy's strategies, understanding how they function, how they operate, what is their uh, academic genesis. And this leads me, of course, to the discussion, the perturbing discussion of the life of Alfred Kinsey, which I want to talk about just uh, for a few minutes this evening here. Alfred Charles Kinsey is known by his most famous biographer, James Jones, who had access to everything that was available in the Kinsey Institute. He had access to the archival material that had never been unveiled before. James Jones refers to Kinsey as the high priest of sexual liberation. And you may, uh, you may be familiar, of course, with his two major works, which are Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Sexual Behavior in the uh, Human Female, which became sort of landmarks in the uh, sexual revolution, but they also have become textbooks for this uh, modern sexual metamorphosis, of which, interestingly, transgenderism is only uh, a more a recent outcome of it. Kinsey believed, which was very unique in his age, and becoming a lot more common in our age and in universities today of discussing uh, sexual ethics, he believed that gender is fluid. And this fluidity, Kinsey argued, is best explored by altering the familiar. In other words, familiar forms of sexuality is a Judeo-Christian form of blinding us to the unexplored areas and spheres of male-male sexuality, female-female sexuality. So Kinsey wanted to undo what the Judeo-Christian tradition referred to as normal sex. Kinsey was the son, this is just a fascinating history, the son of Alfred Sanguine Kinsey, who was known for his very harsh temperament and his Victorian view of self-control. Kinsey Sr. argued that the Christian man was one who could control his emotions, control his urges, and Jones, Kinsey's biographer, writes in his you know, titanic-sized biography that Kinsey's father was a hard man who imposed his will on others with ruthless finality, dominating everyone over whom he had authority, both in the workplace and at home. This was the, the, the mood in the Kinsey home. Kinsey's mother was a very interesting lady, Sarah Ann Kinsey. She was quite brilliant in her own right, but she chose, which I enjoy, interesting language, she chose what Jones refers to, the cult of domesticity. She chose to be a housewife. So she stayed home. She did whatever she asked, which was very common in the 1920s and 30s. She hated her husband, but she saw her role as a housewife, the role that she had inherited. It was the Judeo-Christian role that she needed to embrace. And so she saw her role as a quiet and loyal housewife. Kinsey, that is Alfred Kinsey, our protagonist here, our sex researcher, didn't love his mother, but he tolerated her ways more so than his uh, fathers. And so you can read uh, the main Kinsey biographies, which are the um, two main ones, which are uh, Cornelia Christensen's and James Jones. And the majority of time spent discussing Kinsey's childhood has to do with his relationship, his odd relationship with his father. And young Kinsey's attempts to run away from his father's madness and arrogance. Now, to understand the life of Kinsey here, Alfred Kinsey, the teacher, the sex researcher, we need to remember that the Kinseys did not grow up, as many would expect, in some secularist, atheistic paradise. No, no. The Kinseys actually grew up in a conservative Methodist church in South Orange, New York. The Kinseys were part of a particular Methodist tradition that put the P in pietism. There's a very strong emphasis on self-control, a very um, a strong emphasis on not giving in to temptations. And so biographers talk about Kinsey as one who grew up hearing sermons on the judgment of God, on the wrath of God, and on the hell of God. 
This was the sacred triad of that particular revivalistic Methodist tradition. And this was the formation of young Kinsey's view of the Christian faith. His father, Alfred Sanguine Kinsey, was a Sunday school teacher. So was Alfred Kinsey, by the way. It's a different story. His father sort of took the legalism of the Methodist tradition a step further. He thought the Methodist tradition didn't go far enough. So he is known essentially for preaching two homilies. The first homily is, on, is concerning the evils of the zipper, which he believed offered too quick an access to a person's private parts. And in Sunday school, he would rage against the telephone, which he believed for the first time provided an unmarried man and woman the ability to talk to each other, being in separate places in their beds, which, according to Kinsey, that was unnecessary and untimely intimacy. So these were the big issues for Alfred Sanguine Kinsey, the father. So Kinsey, the younger, uh, grew up with a God who was always wrath and never fun. This is how his biographers sort of describe uh, the God that Kinsey uh, grew up with. Kinsey's academic life here. Young Kinsey... He excelled really in everything he came across. Every academic endeavor he pursued, he excelled, he thrived, he was very successful. He was an avid collector of classical music, really a genius of a pianist. He was not born with musical talents. He worked very hard to develop his skills. And in fact, when he realized he couldn't be the best pianist in his environment, he simply said, I'm done. I'm done playing pianist if I can't be the best. He stopped pursuing it. It was this kind of determined perfectionism that he had, his biographers speak of it, that gave him kind of a platform in virtually every area of his academic career. He was the to-go source for virtually everything. He was known as uh, someone who was kind, someone who expressed um, uh, sincerity in his remarks. His friends admired him. There are various uh, testimonies in Jones' biography of the admiration that people had for Alfred Kinsey. And so Kinsey sort of grew through this level of encouragement from his peers. He grew in his academic pursuits. He was uh, notorious. He read um, vociferously, prolifically. He pursued um, various uh, interests. In particular, what he's most known for is his interest in nature, um, his love of birds and gall wasps which drew his attention to the outdoor. He spent a significant amount of time outside, which was his attempt to run away from the influence and the uh, tyrannical mood of his father. And so he would get away from the stifling environment at home, and he would go outside, spend hours and hours in nature, and come back only uh, for dinner time. After he finished high school, his biographer says, Kinsey was the embodiment of the all-American boy. The all-American boy. He projected his outward appearance of happiness and peace. And then you see this little uh, caveat in his biographies. And I read probably about 2,000 pages worth. And they all have this caveat phrase. It's one way or another. But it says, though outwardly he was joyful and happy and jubilant, inwardly Kinsey was, quote, a terrifyingly secretive man. Close quote. A terrifyingly secretive man. About what? A secretive man about his sexuality and the sexuality of others. And all of that began to build the framework of the Kinsey that we come to know of the Kinsey Report, the Kinsey who would influence generations in the, the path of what, uh, unholy sabotage to the created order that God has in place. So Kinsey, as he continued to be successful in his academic per- career, he received a doctorate at Harvard University, and afterwards he accepted a position in the zoology department at the Indiana University in Bloomington, and he began to use his knowledge of the natural world to become a specialist in botany and insects, and he became an authority in gall wasps. In fact, there are some people who don't know anything about the sexual research of Alfred Kinsey who work in the zoo world and natural, um, the natural world, but they love Kinsey's research on wasps. It's a fascinating thing. And his fascination with the wasp essentially boiled down to the remarkable diversity that wasps had. And their diversity was exactly what set the stage for Kinsey's emphasis on the diversity, gradation, and scale of human sexuality. Sex was too secretive in those days. That's the reality of the 
1930s and 40s. They called it the hush and hide culture. Kinsey wanted desperately, and there's debate as to when he became an atheist. Um, there's various uh, positions on that issue there. But he wanted, most certainly, one thing we know for sure is that Kinsey wanted to change the Judeo-Christian paradigm of sexuality of the day. This is what he wrote. Kinsey wrote later. He said, listen carefully to the way he thinks about these issues here. The only unnatural sex is that which you cannot perform. The only unnatural sex is that which you cannot, which you cannot perform. Kinsey was referred to as the second Darwin. The second Darwin. And it was this sort of uh, you know, evolutionary impulse that led Kinsey to want to connect everything he saw in nature uh, to human relationships, human embodiment, and human sexual habits. In the 1930s, there's this great intramural debate at the uh, University of Indiana in Bloomington among the faculty. And the faculty was very much overwhelmingly in favor of abstinence program uh, there in Bloomington. Uh, in fact, if, if um, uh, just, as, just as a footnote, as I remember here, I was, somebody was asking about the Kinsey movie, which was uh, with Liam Neeson. And I strongly discourage you from watching that movie. I expected something radically different, but it is, um, it is a, a, a perverted movie. And I turned it off within the first 15 minutes. They portray Kinsey as this, um, you know, as, as this typical common man who just had thoughts and who had, he was just unconventional and unorthodox for the day. But they portray him in these very beautiful narratives. So it's a, it's a, in fact, it contradicts the, the, the main biographers of Kinsey. But anyway, the movie portrays Kinsey, and this is where they get it accurately, but they portray Kinsey having this discussion with other faculty members about abstinence. And Kinsey said, okay, let me sit in your classroom. Uh, professors, because they were advocating traditional views of sex, they uh, the movie portrays these professors as incredibly boring, lacking charisma, uh, unable to reach the uh, the youth of the day. And you see the youth in the back giggling, just completely uh, dismissing everything this professor was saying. And some of the students ended up going to the uh, higher uh, folks at the university and telling them that we needed a change in the sexual education of University of Indiana. And so that is when Kinsey came into the picture. And this is really the, the genesis of the Kinsey Revolution was when he began teaching sex education. The first class was a class which doesn't seem very dangerous. It was called a marriage course. And the the reports are that there were people coming from near towns. There were couples coming from everywhere to attend this marriage course class. It began as nothing nefarious, but it began really, it was there where Kinsey was able to articulate in a very charismatic way, in a, in a very profound way, his ideas about sexuality, his unorthodox, unorthodox ways of thinking about sex. And then when he would ask questions, students would lift their, lift their hands up and ask questions, and he would spend hours and hours at the end of class, after class, going towards the evening, answering questions from these uh, curious students. And though Kinsey was very thrilled by the openness of the questions that were posed, what Kinsey realized in those days, the 1930s and 40s, was that there was no objective scientific data for the ideas that he had proposed the ideas he was proposing in the classroom setting. There was no objective scientific data on the matter. And this was the beginning again of Kinsey's uh, launching into research into sexual behavior. And in the 1940s, uh, his dream came to pass when the National Research Council and the uh, Rockefeller Foundation's medical division began to fund Kinsey's research. This is new research of the day, and so these great institutions were providing blank checks for Kinsey to use, uh, and how, however much he needed, he was going to use for his research here. And in 1947, Kinsey and his research assistants they became incorporated under the name of the Institutes for Sex Research. Today, in Indiana, you still have what it goes now under, it, it is now the Kinsey Institute at Indiana 
universe is still continuing the trajectory of Alfred Kinsey with a lot of modernized phraseology, but still undergirded by Kinsey's research. So what happens is, and this is where the movie goes absolutely in a perverted direction here, they perform about approximately 10,000 interviews with various individuals, uh, primarily male, and the interviews were uh, meant to be given as a way of concluding about the, the ethos of the sexual feelings and the experiences of both men and women. He wanted to know what these men raised in this hide and hush culture, or these men who never, who feared the very word sex, who were incapable of uttering that three-letter word in public. He wanted to know what that culture was saying about sex, providing the right environment, providing the privacy so they could share their feelings. Now, we're talking about the 1940s here, so the troops were beginning to come home after the war. There was a period of significant adjustment in the American culture. There was kind of a remaking of America after World War II. Uh, you know, Tom Brokaw refers to it as the greatest generation. But it was really during the greatest generation that Kinsey's book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, was published. So you think about this. The greatest generation experienced the publication of one of the most influential textbooks in sexual history that literally changed everything America once thought about sex. It was during the 1940s. And the book sort of made a case for the need and necessity of sex education in public schools. It became an instant bestseller, selling over 400,000 copies. The money was beginning to pour in into a Kinsey's Institute. And that money and the profits he used to publish his second book, uh, sexual behavior in the human female. The combination of those two formed the Kinsey Report, which I think all of you have have heard of. So the books caused this. The book is the book. Both books are incredibly technical, uh, incredibly frustrating to read, uh, tedious, filled with statistics. But the books were bestsellers, and it caused this sort of sociological shockwave across uh, the nation. And because Kinsey was dealing with these very sexual issues, he, came, he, he began as this uh, little unknown professor at Indiana University, and now he was the sex god of America. Because of that, because he was beginning to deal with these highly tabooed issues in American culture, Kinsey was investigated. He came under investigation by various government groups. Considering uh, Kinsey's research, some of them thought that Kinsey was a spy, a Russian spy, a communist, somebody who came, infiltrated the American uh, soil to uh, defeat the way that America has always been. So he came under a lot of scrutiny. And so what happened to Kinsey is he lost virtually all of his funding. And that begins this long period of depression in the life of Alfred Kinsey. Now, I don't want to dig into Kinsey research because, as I said, it is very perturbing. I could talk about it um, maybe afterwards. But it's a very, very descriptive, detailed analysis of the sexual practices. And of many of them, Kinsey was directly involved in his own research to make things even more um, absurd. The details of the report are, are very graphic. Anyway, entering to the picture, Dr. Judith Reinsman. Dr. Judith Reisman is about 80 years old, and she's a fascinating character. I don't know how to describe her, except I think of Judith Reisman as sort of a, a modern version of Bill O'Reilly. She is in your face. She is absolutely takes no nonsense. And so Judith Reisman has become now the world-renowned anti-Kinsey, world-renowned opponent of Alfred Kinsey. And so she works, she does some work for the Law Department of Liberty University of Virginia these days. So she's become this expert witness. She's 80 years old. She's been doing this for almost 30 years. She had some, um, I think her daughter was sexually abused, which led her to begin this research here. And she goes around the world, and she's invited to every area you can imagine of the world. In fact, um, I, had, I, had just this, I, had, I was able to have this 10-minute conversation with her on the phone, and she is incredible. She's just a fascinating woman. I had a 10-minute interview with her. And what she does mainly, she spends a good part of time 
talking about the influence of the pornography industry in the minds of, of men and women, the multi-billion dollar pornography industry here. Kinsey, which is just a, a kind of a, a little known fact, Kinsey was actually instrumental in the start of the Playboy magazine. Hugh Hefner says, Kinsey, quote, Kinsey is my God, close quote. In the 1980s, um, I think I've, I, I didn't watch them live, but I know all of you have probably been exposed to uh, the Phil Donahue show. And it was quite popular in those days. But um, Phil Donahue was actually a very strong advocate of Alfred Kinsey's research. And so he would bring Judith Reinsman because she thought, well, this is quite an entertainment here. And so she would debate these men who were associates of Kinsey. Now, Kinsey died in 56. This is the 1980s. But she would bring these associates of Kinsey who were still alive. Um, who were still following his footsteps, doing research, and they would debate, and this would be incredibly heated debates. Phil Donahue once said, the two most dangerous women in America are Ayn Rand and Judith, King, uh, Judith Rinsman. I thought, fascinating. He had both of them on his show. Uh, quite an interesting exchange. But there was one time in one of the discussions they were having these heated debates where one of Kinsman's associates worked very closely with him was beginning to talk about, um, and I won't go into details, talk about some of the research that was done in the sexuality of children. And Phil Donahue, who was an apologist for Alfred Kinsey, essentially he stopped the show and he said, now, he said, Mr. Gebhardt, uh, you're certainly joking, right? That's a kind of an untimely joke, but I know you're just joking. And Gebhardt, with the utmost seriousness, said, no, 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 this research actually happened in Kinsey's attic. And this was a, a moment where Riesman said, one of the few moments where the most popular advocate, Alfred Kinsey, paused and said, maybe there's something wrong with this man after all. These debates are all on YouTube, by the way. Uh, they're quite fascinating. The most uh, extensive documentary of Kinsey is a three-hour documentary, which I think is now on YouTube, called The Kinsey Syndrome, the biggest expose on what exactly went on as Kinsey was publishing the famous Kinsey Report. So one of Kinsey's conclusions, which is quite radical, but has gained a lot of popularity. Now in the 40s, this is absolutely outrageous. You've got to realize this. This is outrageous. This is a, a hush. You know, the word sex is not a word that is mentioned. And in the 1940s, Kinsey published a lot of his research, and he determined the following. He determined that 10% of the American population, the male population, was homosexual. 10% of the male population was homosexual. Now what's interesting, and I, I referenced this earlier, was that Kinsey didn't view male and female as separate categories. Kinsey, as you see in your outline there, the little chart that I have there, he viewed male and females as scales. In other words, gender is fluid. It's subject to change depending on circumstances and experiences. So the chart he has there is one that the Kinsey Institute still uses today, 2016. And that chart goes from 0 to 6. I won't spend much time here. But you can see it there that uh, Kinsey's main point was that male and female, they experience sexuality throughout life in ways that are more diverse than American culture granted back then. Like the gall wasps. Remember his research on the gall wasps? They're, they're varied. You can't, put, you, you can't put a male in a sex box. Each experiences sexuality differently. And each male expression of sexuality, he believed, has its merit. So he would say that throughout the life of a regular human male, he would experience periods and phases of his life where he would act as a homosexual, and then another times he would act as a heterosexual. And so throughout his life, he would say that every male and female experienced different varieties of sexual expression. So that you couldn't say at the end of the day that there are these separate categories of static male and female. Rather, male and female acted differently depending on their circumstances. And Kinsey's uh, wild claim, which was certainly wild in those days. Now today, would that be a wild claim? Probably not. Uh, probably not at all. But in those days, it was wild. And so enter the famous statisticians of the day, particularly W.O. Jenkins, who... Um, fought Kinsey uh, vociferously. He noted that Kinsey's research falls below the level of good scientific writing. 
And what these researchers pointed out to was that Kinsey had a presupposition. How about that? He had a presupposition. And Kinsey was very subjective in his data, in his research. Kinsey was simply affirming, he was simply stating his conclusion before he even started his research. Essentially saying that any form of sexuality has its merits. So the sex scholars of the day, that's what they were called, they opposed Kinsey's works. And what happened later on, about 20 years after Kinsey died, was that Dr. Judith Reinsman and others began to decipher and have access to the archival work of the Kinsey Institute. And this is what they discovered. They discovered many things, which I won't mention. But among them, they discovered that Alfred Kinsey had used as the primary source of his research, his sex research, mail from the prisons locally. He had used pedophiles, sexual predators, and the vast prison population, which he referred to as examples of model citizens. Now, by the time of the discoveries, of course, 20 years later, this is Kinsey had been gone for a decade or more, um, his research had already decimated. It had become, it had had this worldwide impact. And the academic work of Kinsey had already influenced a generation of professors to believe, essentially, that every sexual act is of no consequence to society. And the standard uh, slogan of the day is that a Christianized ethic of sexual purity makes absolutely no sense. It believes it needs to be shattered. So the goal was a world where sexuality was no longer a taboo and boys and girls experimented sexually without guilt. This all goes back again to Kinsey's upbringing, his pietistic background, which was very guilt-ridden, and he wanted sexual experimentation without guilt. Sex education was adopted, various institutes around the country uh, discussing the roles of lesbianism um, and the, the merits of it were... Uh, started. Kinsey's work was made access, accessible to the, mod, to the public. It was taught and taught again and again by charismatic uh, professors. They wanted to make his sexual thought, talks as attractive as possible. And so Kinsey introduced to the world the, this vast uh, reservoir of evil, ranging from the pornography industry to, listen, to the decriminalization of vile sexual acts. In those days, Judith Rinsman told me that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the laws contained the death penalty for rape, the death penalty for pedophilia. These, these were just common, the laws of the land. This was just the common theme. And what Kinsley, Kinsey did, he was able to persuade Congress through his research that these Convicted sexual offenders needed to have their sentences minimalized because they were not lost. They could be, through counseling and therapy, they could be, once again, model citizens of America. And so Kinsey argued before Congress that sexual predators were ultimately, quote, misunderstood men who needed society's help, close quote. He argued against the clear facts we have today that the recidivism rate for sexual offenders uh, uh, is incredibly high. He argued that this was actually a, a lie back then, that we need to, instead of imprisoning these men and giving this harsh penalty, we needed to give them some therapy and set them loose as quickly as possible in our modern culture here. It's a known fact that Alfred Kinsey, as I mentioned earlier, also was directly involved in some of the sexual experimentations. Uh, one scholar observed this point. Unbeknownst to the general public of the day, Kinsey was also involved in sex acts with his staff and in the filming of hundreds of persons involved in sexual activity, including footage taken of his own masochistic sex acts. He and his colleagues paid adolescent boys to perform sex acts on film and turned the Kinsey house into a studio for pornographic documentation, close quote. Of course, all these videos and all this kind of research was packed away for almost a decade after Kinsey died until people like James Jones and other biographers had access to the Kinsey archives. The end result of the Kinsey revolution, as we close here, was the death of sex as we know it. The death of sex as America knew it in the 1940s and 50s.
Kinsey was surely worthy, I would say, and many scholars would agree, to be put alongside a Nazi scientist as one who celebrated sexual promiscuity and was actually personally involved in sexual violation of many in the name of science. In fact, this is just the research done in the last 15 years, Kinsey actually had very specific ties to Nazi members. Dr. Riesman asserts in her book, Kinsey's Attic, the shocking story of how one man's sexual pathology changed the world. She says that Kinsey corresponded for several years with Dr. Fritz von Baluchek. Baluchek sent Kinsey his records. He was a Nazi officer who sent Kinsey his records of sexual abuse. And Kinsey writes in return, and I read these letters, he said, I wish to thank you greatly for the work you have done. And later on, Baluchek was used as a primary source in his, in his research. So what have we gained from Kinsey? <clears throat> the name that, if I mention only a very few, maybe one out of ten will recognize. We've gained from Kinsey sex education, the pornography industry, experimental sex, the diminishing sentences for sexual predators, which is where I focus a lot of my interest, the diminishing sentence for sexual predators, the academic formation, it's a very well researched, of judges in our courts today who are mostly influenced by Kinsey and what scholars refer to as the post-Kinsey era. We've also gained the vastly underemphasized violation of women through domestic abuse in our culture and so much more. Kinsey believed that there was no evidence, this is what he says, there was no evidence of long-term damage in rape victims or victims of sexual abuse, close quote. Now, that, that ought to just blow your mind. That just absolutely blow everything you think about normalcy and commonsensicalness. Alfred Kinsey was motivated, Jones says in his 900-page biography, by his, quote, heartfelt desire to gain social acceptance for homosexuals and other sexual minorities, close quote. Kinsey was confronting a world that played hush and pretend about sex, and his solution was to enter into the depths of depravity. So, in conclusion, Kinsey didn't start the sexual revolution. This would be to give him too much credit. But you could say he gave the sexual revolution the academic stamp of approval that they needed to propagate their message. Judy Reinsman, I think, summarizes best when she says, tyrannical pansexuality was Kinsey's religion. Tyrannical pansexuality was Kinsey's religion. All sin demands a high price, right? Kinsey paid his due. He actually died at 62 years of age, very young, after being exposed, after exposing his body to vile sexual experiments. He died of complications associated with orchitis, which indicates he had contracted venereal disease here. His painful demise was an apocalyptic sign that sex is really only beautiful, pleasant, and honorable when it's regulated by God's word. Our hypersexualized culture can only be undone by a gospel that teaches the dignity of human beings as image bearers. Kinsey is a product of a fallen mind that provoked common grace and challenged it to a duel. And he may have won the sexual world, but in the end he lost his own soul. Thank you. I have a few minutes for questions. Gary, what would you recommend as uh, just a single treatment, criticism, analysis? To uh, Judy Rinsman.com. She has um, all her books are made available for free, and she has a lot of research that is accessible to laymen, and that is where I would be. It's not Judy and Judith. Let's try this here. If you write on the Google, you'll find it. Okay, so Bill's asking the question, what are Judith Reedsman's commitments religiously? She's, she's a very, very strong Christian. Rich. Mm. 
But it's very hard to believe that this is not going to come back. Right. That's a remarkable statement. It, I mean, contemplate what I said earlier about we went from the death penalty to reducing the sentence of these men, and you know they're ninety-five percent, if not more, men, reducing them to six months to a year and some therapy, and then liberating them once again to society. You have uh, dates for Kinsey's life and the dates for her life. And how Died in nineteen fifty-six. Uh, Judith is still alive. She's eighty, and um, I don't think they ever met personally. No, they never met face to face. She had a chance to interview Paul Gebhardt, who was the closest confidant of Alfred Kinsey. And those interviews are all available online. They're very fascinating and revealing too. Um, but she has been just such a uh, prophetic voice in, in this conversation. Sammy. The question Sammy's asking about, the question is about Kinsey's outward appearance as happy and joyful, but inwardly he had these uh, secretive, uh, this hunger to explore sexuality. I think the outward appearance was a fruit of the pietistic heritage he came from, which is a very, um, you know, outward oriented. This is what you have to, what you have to show. Your shirts have to be ironed. Everything was, there was a kind of a perfectionist tendencies there. Um, and his struggles actually came, he was in kind of an all-American, he was a Boy Scout. And one of the things I didn't get a chance to talk about was how he had an opportunity to influence the early stages of the Boy Scout. Uh, I haven't pursued that much, but he was one of the early voices. He was one of the first uh, models of the Boy Scout movement in the, in the 30s and 40s, I believe. In fact, he established some principles that were later absorbed by other Boy Scout movements around the country. Absolutely, yeah. But inwardly, we're you know we're finding out now that he that apparently they they have a dark character now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Sammy, Sammy's point is about the the outward appearance of popular figures in our day that we think, boy, these men must be um, um, you know mighty holy, and the revelations come many years later after they've gone through their careers that they throughout their careers have been abusing their authority and abusing their privileges. That's a that's a very salient remark when you think about it because that's happening a lot more in our day. It sure is. It's just we have more accessibility to these things. And by the way, the awareness of sexual predators, the awareness of sexual abuse is increasing in our culture, uh, unfortunately because of these things that have happened. But there's just a, I mean, just when I, even when I began this research a few years ago, from that time till now has increased significantly. Yes, sir. You had a quote right at the end uh, with the word tyrannical in it. Could you say that again, please? Tyrannical pansexuality was Kinsey's religion. That's a powerful quote. This has nothing to do with your lecture except what you just said about the awareness of sexual abuse in the last four or five years. Is that a good thing? Or is that a government run thing? Is that. I mean, you talk about the awareness of sexual abuse, but Bill Clinton's still doing it, Cosby, and everybody's pornography's growing, and so it seems like uh, the right hand's saying this, and the left right. hand's pushing this. Oh, no sexual abuse, but sex ed in the schools. Right. So, uh, I guess the question is, you say the awareness, but I don't, I don't see it being effective in a good sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I understand the question. Burke is asking about the effectiveness of the increased interest in sexual abuse in our culture. I think, and I can only speak for um, the ecclesiastical scene, I think what you're seeing, I'm dealing with this, on a, I, mean, I literally get phone calls from pastors around the country on these issues. There's an increased interest in um, having churches actually provide documents um, that, that grant some level of constitutional safety for people who come into church. Um, that we've never provided before. So it's, there are constitutional changes being made today by hundreds and thousands of churches and providing more... I mean, we think about a mega church with the kinds of things that happen in there. But um, like a local mega church in, in town, um, in Pensacola, 
They have uh, to work for the nursery to take kids on a bus drive or on a van for a sporting event. They have to go through a pretty serious process to get there. So I think that has been very, very beneficial. And the other, the other element of it is, is just simply the empowerment um, that young ladies now have because of social media to come out and speak of things that happened many years ago when it was just simply unacceptable. I mean, you just, I mean, even, and I, I saw this because I read many cases of this here, where fathers and mothers were fully aware that their daughters had been sexually abused by, by an uncle, by a close relative, but they thought it was such a tab, they thought it would ruin their reputations. So they were incapable of making the news public. They wouldn't go to the police. They wouldn't go to their pastors. That's changing. That's changing. I, I mean, I, I see that changing. I really do. In the whole broader culture. In the whole broader not culture. Just Christian culture. But no, not just the Christian culture. We're all animals. Sex okay all the time, and yet we're railing against sexual abuse. If there's any awareness of this group you go to that you know it's okay to do all this yeah. all the time, but here we're going to talk about it. it's not okay to do it all yeah. the time, but it's okay if you do it over here. Teaching schools, but it's yeah. not okay if you do it over here. It is schizophrenic. <laughs> I think. I Is think. There any awareness of that, though, that they're speaking out of both sides. Yeah, Bur- Burke is wondering about these, you know, these programs that are wonderful social programs, but they contradict their message at the end of the day, right? So they're uh, pro-abortion on the one hand, and the other hand, they're saying let's defend the life of the victims. There's a, a contradict, and that's uh, that's that is what that's what you expect from that world. Um, at the same time, we're trying to uh, begin certain institutions and conversations that will help, you know, build that. Um, no longer have that bifurcation existing. But you're right, and I've been there. It's what I said earlier on. I think the church struggles with this too because we have, most evangelical churches I grew up with, there was no, um, there was no outburst towards the sexually active teen. But on Monday morning, my goodness, you hear the, he was the guy screaming at the abortion clinic on Monday morning. So that, there's that, that contradiction even the evangelical scene too. I, you know, I honestly think, as I talk to pastors around there, I honestly think they have no clue about any of this. I think they're just simply content to get up in the pulpit and share their message on Sunday. But they have absolutely zero clue about what's happening in their congregants' life, the profound effects of sexual victims. They just don't understand. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Pastor Yuri Brito, now available in the Word MP3 collection on Canon Plus.